Welcome. It's Sunday again. Here we go. We're going to read from Anna Maria Manalo's The Way Through the Woods. But before then, I want to thank everybody. My name is Charlotte. Oh, I'm going to hit myself again. My name is Charlotte. I'm the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 35 strong up and down the state. We're, and we also have branches in Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. And I want to thank everybody for last night. We went out to a a cemetery, an area cemetery here in, here in Sacramento County, and um, about ten people showed up, and and five, what, four or five team five team members showed up from California Haunts, and we took people on what we call a ghost tour, and the ghost tour consists of using some of our equipment and learning how to use it, and just having a good old time. We went out to the cemetery last night, and all all three teams we divided into three teams, and. Uh, all three teams had some type of experience out there. I got to use the SLS cam, um, you know, that thing you see on TV with the stick people. I got to use that last night. And Karen Clark, one of our lead field psychics, uh, was out there, and she had, was leading a team. And they were at a, a couple of graves, and they had, she had said that there was a man and woman there, and the man had broken his right foot. And what was interesting is, with the SLS cam, we actually picked him up as a stick person. I'm waiting. Someone took a photo of the, of, of the images, so I'm waiting to see those photos. And, you know, you could probably say, okay, it was the tombstone and stuff, but she would ask on command for him to lift up his foot. And right in front of us on the camera, the foot would lift up. And that's the way I like to work with that SLS cam, is I like to work with one of the psychics, or mediums, rather, if they want to be called a medium. Uh, work with one of the psychics or mediums and have them work with whatever we're seeing on screen. And that's what we did last night. So that that trend, that, that went down. And then uh, we had some people experience being touched and uh, hearing footsteps. And some felt like they were being watched. And on one instant, uh, somebody witnessed Karen going to sit down on a, on a bench and saw a uh, mist following her as she was walking. So every team, um, you know, experienced something, you know, uh, people uh, like uh, one gal um, said, who said she was, had sensitive abilities, said that she saw the people from the cemetery, you know, milling around, checking us out as we were run, as we were going through. So, like I said, every team experienced something. So it was a pretty cool event. The only thing that stopped us was it got cold last night. And that for this time of year out there, that's usually what happens is you get chased out by the cold. It gets really, really cold out there. But I've been out there, straighten my head up. I've been out there several times over the years. It's where we train our team, team members. We train new equipment out there. And uh, you do feel like you're being watched. The perimeter of the cemetery, um, Native Americans are, are supposed to be buried along, along the perimeter on the other side of the fence. You don't go over there and, and you know, walk around and check them out. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's considered disrespectful. But it's funny because you can sit out there and you'll be sitting, you know, uh, you know, not on the graves, but you know, just just sitting in the general area, and you feel like you're like like someone's really, really, really watching you. And so you'll turn around and you know look over your shoulder all the time just to see. And it happens all the time. It happens when I'm out there, you know, to me and some of my real season investigators have experienced it. Plus, they get, plus as, as the night wears on, more starts to happen, and they tend to be watching a lot of the time. You know, it's like they're passing through. You know, we had a couple instances last night where. There was activity on the EMF meters and stuff, and, and then it would just go away. And that's because a lot of the time they're, they're they're curious, just like we're curious. You know, we're looking around the graves and stuff, and 
they're checking us out to see why we're out there, right? Because we're in this rural area and they're, they're wondering what the heck we're doing out there at 10, 11 o'clock at night. So they're just passing through. So they'll hang out for a little while and maybe play with some of our equipment and off they go, right? Because we had what we call our firefly in a jar. And this firefly in a jar is an electrical wire that's hooked up to a light that, that jumps like a firefly, right? But the only way to trigger it is you have to you have to tap the top of the jar physically. And we were getting yes and no answers with this firefly jar. So whatever it was was talking to us. And then after a while, it was gone. And that's usually that's usually what happens when you're out, you know, when you're out there. Because they'll come by, like I said, come by, check you out, and they're then they're off doing whatever. They're not these people are boring. See you off they go. Anyway, it was a great night. And uh uh I want to thank uh, Karen Clark for coming out, Gerilyn Je Baser, uh, Marisa Haynes, and Susan Klein, who was on our team in the early stages of our team and left for personal reasons. And she came back and uh, she came out to the cemetery last night, took charge, grabbed some equipment, took charge, took a group out, and away they went. And so everybody had a good time. Anyway, today we're going to be reading our book again. I think we're on chapter 33. And we're going to be starting that. <clears throat> Excuse my throat. I have paranormal hangover. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not used to walking around that much out in the public because I was my back pain. But I did. I had no problems last night. Man, I was tired when I got home. I wasn't really tired. I stayed up and watched movies when I got home. And then, of course, today I felt it. So I've been kind of la lazy around the house all day. But uh, here we are together for our usual Sunday reading. And uh, like I said, I cannot answer chat messages because... Once I get the screen up, it's going to be right completely in front of me when I'm reading it because I'm blind. And so I have to be able to, you know, I got old eyes. So I have to be able to have big letterings on the PDF. Big, big letterings, big letters. See what I mean? It's one of those days. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I'm glad that you guys are here. And I'm really enjoying this book. And I've been told by the author that it's going to get really spooky. Okay. Let me get some water here. We're supposed to get a lot of rain overnight and into tomorrow. So I was out prepping the yard before the show and prepping my lawnmower that I had out yesterday. That's real water. Yeah. That's the last thing you guys need to hear me do is gulp, right? So anyway, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I want to thank everybody if you're watching from YouTube. Let me get down here. I got to put a little table in here. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube, uh, remember to subscribe. There's that little ghost down in the right-hand corner. And you click on that, and it's got a little magnifying glass, and it's got a Sherlock Holmes hat on. Click on that. That will make you a subscriber to the show. And uh, we have more than 200 videos on this. And also, dun, 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 we're going to go this week. We're going to do six shows. Actually, yeah, six shows this week. Special guest on Friday. And we might be adding a sixth show every week from here on in. So we'll see how... How it goes and how I feel and ah, get my hat in the right direction. Nothing worse than a crooked hat. And so that's one of the big announcements right now. And if you guys are interested in doing a ghost tour, we will be doing one again in May. We're taking April off, but we're doing one again in May. Now, hopefully, we're going to set up a nice hotel and get into a real nice, warm, cozy hotel. That was what everybody said last night was they love the ghost tour. They want to do one. They'd like to do one in a nice, cozy hotel. And you know what? I would, too. Okay, well, let me call it, let me bring the thing up and uh, the PDF up. And so, like I said, I can't answer. Uh, I see Pamela's in the chat room. I can't answer chat room questions because I won't see them. Okay, so let me do this and let me move forward. 
And also, because of my allergies, I might have to use contact lens solution in my eye, in the corners of my eyes, so don't get freaked out if I'm poking my, if I'm poking my eyes with this thing, okay? All right, here we go. Okay, let me get this straight ready to have it. And like I said, I'm reading directly off the PDF screen, so I will not see you guys, you guys' comments, so you'll probably can say whatever you want to me. I don't know. All right, so here we go. It's kind of hot in here. Krista opens the bathroom door and almost runs into Frau's apple bosom. The scent of the air de temps assails her and almost makes her turn back, if not for the Frau's restraining hand gripping her sleeve. Why are you here? Veins are pronounced on the woman's fat cheeks, her face a shade of pink, which contrasts to her heavy frame draped in a yellow dress suitable for a luncheon she is hosting below. I was just looking around and curious, I guess. Krista's explanation, quickly done in a decision to remain calm and matter-of-fact, softens the woman's demeanor. These are my private apartments. Private. I'm sorry for the intrusion. Frau Distrachasi examines Krista's face, trying to exudiate a motive. Krista makes a move to leave, and the Frau puts a hand up. I will give you a tour. After all, you're living here, and you're one of my best mentors. Krista smiles a smile of one who appears honored but there's nothing to see in my bathroom. Come, follow me. Krista gives a smile, now curious what the Frau is willing to reveal. She quickly hides inside the left pocket of her blue party dress the photo of the Frau with the dark-haired woman sitting close together, naked. With a perfunctionary tone, the Frau, the Frau spreads her hands to show how she has decorated the bath. You see, I always lived wisteria. Are you familiar with plants? Krista places one finger on her chin as if thinking as she again surveys the wallpaper with embossed wisteria vines, which snake their way towards the high ceiling. When I see wisteria, I think of my mama. The frau pauses, looking back at Krista as if she has been slapped. Her tone is incongruous with her reply. I am so, I'm sorry you do. Perhaps we should go to my bedroom. It has a nice leafy pattern. Krista turns to the bedroom and walks out the bathroom, surveying the window curtains tied back with gold tassels. Everything reminds me of her. The frau stops, the frau stops frowning. It's my goal. It is, it's not my goal to make you homesick for things that are now permanently in the past. Move on. You must. The last sentence is like a reprimand, a slap. Wouldn't you miss your mother if you had one? Of course. My mother, the frau stops. Let's go back to the dining to the drawing room. The Frau turns to leave. I'd like to know what happened to my mother. The Frau turns back, facing Krista head on. Do you really want to know? Really? The woman's expression, hard, cold, tells Krista everything she dreads to hear. Her mother is dead. Gone. Torn from her life. The tone told her what she dreaded. Krista swallows. How about my father? The Frau softens. It is clear he has been dealt a softer blow. He remains a tailor where he can help the Reich. A feminine cough, now more pronounced, issues from the next room. Quickly, the Frau approaches the bathroom, the bathroom door shutting it. Krista seizes the opportunity. Who is that? One of the maids, my valet. She takes all her meals here. The Frau gives Krista a stabbing look. She sounds sick. Krista makes for the bathroom door, for the bathroom, opening the door, rushing in and grabbing the knob so the dressing room's connecting door where the young woman's coughs clearly be heard. I'm sorry, and grabbing the knob to the dressing room's connecting door where the young woman's cough can clearly be heard. The Frau grabs Krista's arm. You are not to go there. 
tell me where my father is. The Frau, turn, the Frau turns Krista's shoulders with her hands, pinning the girl against the dressing room wall. Why? After I took you in and showed you, tell me where my father is. No. Krista turns the knob. The Frau slaps her hand. Krista reveals the photograph in her pocket, holding it with both hands. Is this the girl next door? The Frau's face blanches. She appears about to faint. The Frau tries to grab the photograph. Karma, Krista thinks. I'll use the photo the same way my parents were arrested. Tell me where my father is, and I won't tell anyone about you and her. Krista's lips point to the door beyond. A feminine voice issues from beyond the door. Miley? What's the matter? The Frau pauses. With resignation, she reluctantly opens the adjoining door, revealing a young woman in her early 30s, the same one in the photograph. She is more beautiful than the picture. Krista, meet Adelaide. Adelaide, my best teacher. The young woman and bends from the settee, gracefully approaching Krista. She touches Krista's face tenderly. Scars line the woman's wrists. Adelie, Adelie speaks. Tell her where her father is, like you told me where mine was, in Buchenwald. 34. Horse stumbles, almost landing on one knee. Ahead, a deep wood in the twilight. He looks behind him. No farmhouse, just a forest. He is now completely engulfed by the wood. Horse has been walking briskly for about three hours, his thirst becoming more and more pronounced. He glances at his watch, which shows 10.15 p.m. Another gift from Brigadier Fury. <laughs> Here we go. For, 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 ah, another gift from... See, everybody thinks this is funny, and it is funny. Another gift from, from, from Brigadier Fury Bear that he chose not to confiscate. He spots a tree... <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. He spots a tree limb, sturdy, leafless. He grabs it from the forest floor and uses a walking stick. Eyes a boulder in a clearing and heads for it. Wearily, he sits, unraveling the messenger bag from his shoulder. A twig snaps. Horse swivels to look behind him, alarmed. A doe stands motionless, eyes reflecting back, studying him. Horse exhales in relief. From the bag, he pulls out, he pulls out a bottle of water, still glistening from condensation. He takes a swig, inhales again. He closes his eyes, dreaming. He hears a young woman singing. Horse eyes open in distant relief. The sound stops. Surely he was dreaming, even delirious. He reopens the bag and reluctantly reveals the loaf of bread from the cook. Horse rewrapped it in a light blue handkerchief. He breaks off a small piece, places it on a boulder, reaching in for the wheel of cheese and a knife, which he had hidden in a pocket of the bag. He slices hungrily, chewing the cheese and bread. He decides he will chew them at least 20 times, but he does not succeed. So famished is he from the combined effort of, of the escape, fear of detection, and hike he is unaccustomed to. He slices more bread, cuts another piece of cheese, looking around him for anyone who might be walking. The singing, a lullaby, resumes. A girl's voice, strangely familiar, which is lost on horse at the moment. His face registers a growing familiarity. <laughs> it's one of those days. His face registers a growing familiarity, curi curiosity, and wonderment as the voice continues, at the voice he hears. He, stand, he stands, the embroidered handkerchief falling from his lap as he, he attempts to locate the sound. Suddenly, the wind blows. The singing stops. Quickly, Horse packs away the food, closing the bag with haste and swinging it back on his shoulder. He looks up at the ridge to his left and scampers up with renewed energy. 
Behind him, a blue cloth lies on the ground. A gale force wind blows again. This time, the handkerchief sails in the air and is taken up flying. As the handkerchief lands, a pink pony is evident, is evidently embroidered on it. Excuse me. Pardon me. 35. Crickets sing. Krista steps out of the patio, a small covered basket in one hand, a canvas rucksack secured by scraps to her back. Uh, straps to her back. I'm losing my mind today. Wrapped in a spring coat, wearing boots, and a green flowered dress she found she found new at the previous house. She looks up at the Frau's bedroom window. The Frau watches her and gives one wave, a sad look on the woman's face. At another window, she sees the slim face of Adelie smiling. Krista steps off the patio and swiftly walks the expanse of lawn that joins the narrow road towards town. She told both women she would catch a train to Eisenach, over 100 miles north, where her father is stationed. She hopes they believed her, as she has no intention of using the trains for fear of apprehension should they be persuaded to give her away. In her rucksack, the Frau told her to pack a spare youth corps uniform should she need it. It might come of use, the Frau said, depending on whom she encountered. For now, she is a regular German girl, blonde and blue-eyed, walking through the forest in search of truffles and getting lost. Krista clutches a map given to her by the Frau, who reluctantly cooperated and let her go in exchange for Krista's silence about her relationship with Adelie. It was not lost on Krista that the Frau had fallen in love with a Jew and another woman at that. And another woman at that. Krista crosses the road, minding any traffic that may be passing, and enters the woods beyond. It is just another late spring day that a youth corps teacher is defecting to search for her exiled father and mother, she thinks cynically. Pitch is the color that awaits her. Krista trudges on, but has to pause as the woods deepen. Glancing behind her, she notes the receding light from the road, which is only heightened, which is only brightened by the sky above. Here, shrouded in complete darkness by the canopy of deepening wood, she has to readjust her eyes. Krista shuts her eyes and then opens them again, blinking. She surveys the terrain, the branches on the ground, the, the kudzu, the thick canopy of maples, birch, walnut, and ferns that grow to cover the forest floor. A chorus of frogs and a manner, an old manner of animals preparing to rest for the night covers her ears. Then, amidst the natural sounds of night, she hears the faint sounds of a vehicle, like a truck, approaching the road. Krista tightly clutches the strap of the canvas rucksack secured to her back and the woven basket, filled with all manner of food from the frow. She darts quickly through the brush, disappearing in, a th in the thicket of an army truck as an army truck rolls by, a Nazi flag flying. She wishes her mother, even her father, were here with her to explain why Hitler turned their lives upside down. Her mother had an explanation for everything. 36. A detail-worn map is spread out on a boulder, a small lantern nearby, stretching tendrils of light in the gloaming. Horse fingers trace horse finger traces the path through the large forest on the map, stretching almost from Eisenbach, Eisenach, I'm sorry, down to Budingen, Budingen, just north of Frankfurt. There is no path, only a wooden expanse that he can see. I'm thinking that the people that listen to my show in Germany are laughing their laughing their tails off at my pronunciations. So ha ha, okay, off we go. 
The forest sounds, <laughs> the forest sounds around him lull him to an almost fever pitch of slumber. His eyes are almost closing, closing with exhaustion. Suddenly, the silence. The forest is dead. Gunshots. Horse eyes open wide. In the eerie silence, he heard what he perceived as gunshots. Quickly, he refolds the map, stuffs it into his bag, and reshoulders it, gazing at the lantern. He shuts it off, plummeting the wood into darkness. Something compels him to look down at his vest. A thin quilted affair he sewed himself for chilly evenings when he's so late. A dark spot is widening, soaking the buttons on and, and the quilt. He touches it and smells blood, aghast. Seated on the boulder and his bag shouldered on him, he stands, disoriented by the blood. Has he just been shot? He feels no different. In fact, he just feels as he did before, save for the fatigue of the hike. He unshoulders the bag, begins to unbutton his vest for in fear, checking for his body for injuries. Unbuttoning his shirt, he discovers no source of the blood. The blood is confined to his clothing, which appears in his hands, now loose and apart from him. To keep, to keep, which appear okay, which appears in his hands, now loose and apart from him, to keep widening with blood. The shirt and vest are eventually soaked. More gunshots. Without spare clothing, Horse keeps examining the bloody clothes, totally perplexed. He cannot risk turning the lamp back on for fear of giving away his position. Not even his small flashlight. Dashing away from his spot in the clearing, he examines the ground for blood, but can't tell in the darkness. He intended to doze off before waking again, but he needs to locate the origin of the sounds. Perhaps a hunter has shot game, and it fell near him, accounting for the blood. He looks up at the ridge near him and decides that what may be happening can safely be viewed from above. Horse seeks purchase, reaching for branches and roots as he, as he clambers up, hoping no one will detect the scent of the blood on his clothes or himself. It is what he fears the most if the Nazis were in pursuit. Leaving the clothing is nonsense. He needs protection from the elements. He will find a stream to wash it off, whatever it is, as soon as he deems it safe and there's some light. Still perplexed, he struggles towards the last few feet of the, feet of the small ridge, grabbing a tree limb and finally falling into a seated position. Below Horst, he sees what appears to be dim bluish light, several yards from his position. He watches as several soldiers appear to be in line facing several people who are facing them. Then more shots. Like marionettes without strings, the people fall. Horst smells the overpowering scent of gunpowder. The one soldier wallows away like a drunken man away from the line. And towards Horst, he drops his rifle grabs a pistol hidden in his boot. A man, spiddly with youth, clambers drunkenly up towards the ridge. Horst hides behind the tree, breathing hard. The man reaches the top just a few feet from Horst. He aims his pistol to his chin and fires. Blood jettisons from the man's head, spreading flesh and brain matter all over the tree branches above Horst. Horst hears his own screams. Eyes wide, he crawls away, unable to stand in disbelief. Then silence. Horse finally stands, sweeping off the entrails from his body. He trips as he attempts to walk away and rolls back down the embankment. His momentum finally stopped by the lantern he left behind and his heavy bag. He cries, emotionally exhausted, and falls into an uneasy slumber. 37. A shadow blocks Krista's view of the sun streaming through the leaves above her. Blinking. She attempts to discern the figure above her and is instantly gripped with fear. She sits up, 
her dress wet from the morning dew. Water drips from the leaves that shielded her from the night's weather. She looks around, stiff from her sleeping position, and turns in time to see a woman with a worn and simple dress walking away. The profile of a familiar face turns towards Krista, then it is gone. Agatha, her mother. Mama! Krista stands up in the early stillness of morning, her movement stirring at cacophony of birds. She darts towards the meadow where the woman was headed and looks around. Mama? A breeze blows, a pause, a deep stillness. Here and there, Krista dashes around the thicket of the, of the wildness, her legs bending and tangling with the undisturbed understory. Krista looks back at her rucksack and basket, still where she left them. She wants to surge forward to locate the woman, but feels conflicted about leaving her map and belongings, which she still needs in order to move on. Finally, hunger takes over and wins. Krista walks back, sits, digging for breakfast, the first meal since she began her walk two days ago. She spots her bottle of water, now half empty. As she, as she eats a peach, she, she surveys the area, hoping her mother is somewhere in the woods, looking for her and the rest. She felt deep stirrings of hunger, more instinctive, but now, assuaged, she again longs for a familiar and comforting face. Charged with renewed energy, Krista gathers her belongings and again darts towards the meadow where she saw the figure of Agatha. She can't comprehend why her mother didn't reply when she called to her, visible as she thought her to be. She wonders if it was wishful thinking, and perhaps a hallucination brought on by hunger and her desire. 38. Dead leaves blow low onto Horace's face, awakening him. He sits up, hearing a rustle behind him. A dog, scraggly thin, fur around its eyes turned white, an old German shepherd. The shepherd paused from his digging, one paw still up, observing Horace. In the process of digging, the leaves were strewn in Horace's direction. Man and dog stare entranced at each other, an unexpected introduction. Then it dawns on Horace the events of the previous night. The soldier who shot himself after shooting a line of civilian prisoners. Horse looks up at the ridge behind him. The dog still paused in observation. Horse looks down at himself, feeling disgust as he recalls the man's flesh and brain spewing forth. Arterial blood had jetted on him. But there's nothing on him but his own sweat, dirt, and mud. Surprised, Horse continues to examine himself as the dog sits, almost as riveted as he. He stands up, examines his shirt, his pants, and his own hair. Other than the leaves and dirt, the dog strewed on top of him while he slept, no evidence of any human violence. The young soldier, who appeared about 16 years of age, only stood a few feet from Horst. He should have been covered in blood, brain matter, and perhaps even pieces of dead man's hair. Thoughts and a panoply of amazement floods Horst as he, as he wonders whether his fear immersed and thirsty brain is causing him to see things. Then the dog approaches. Horse quickly and protectively grabs his messenger bag, which contains the food. The dog has something within his jaws. The dog drops it. A long bone, gristle still attached, plops on the leaf-covered ground. The dog sits, its tail wagging, as if awaiting recognition of its gift. Horse examines and nudges the bone with his foot. The dog whines, looking at him and back at the bone. An offering. Horst, interpreting the dog's gesture as want, digs in his bag and produces a piece of cheese, cutting it and tossing it towards the dog. Hungrily, the dog wolfs down the cheese, smiling, a dog's smile, and panting. 
a breeze blows, wafting with it a sickening sweet scent. The moment of morbidity sinks in with it, and a horse brain registers death once again. There is a death nearby. There is death nearby. He looks up at the ridge, feeling repelled, sickened, and almost on the verge of vomiting. But he doesn't. Instead, horse grabs the bone, turns the object in his hands, squinting at the dog, which looks back, head tilted. Then, as he examines both bone and dog, the hair on his head begins to prickle. He glances at the dog, gazes back at the bone, and stares at the animal, animal's hindquarters. The dog has presented him with the dog's hindquarters. Horse spots a skull right behind the shepherd. Slowly he drops the bone and stands, approaching the skull with trepidation, but his curiosity wins out. A dog's skull. Horse straightens, surveying the field adjacent to the ridge. More bones. A sweet scent assails him as he moves again as he moves closer and realizes he has stumbled upon a field of animal bones. Horse looks back at the German shepherd. The poor dog, almost skin and bones, looks starved. Horse puts two and two together as the animal darts away and rummages among the recent carcasses farther afield, eating what remains of his comrades. The dog, desperate to feed, has become a cannibal. This time, Horse throws up his meal. Filled with unease, Horse reluctantly looks up at the ridge where he rolled off in his haste to get away from the suicide last night. Feeling a need to check what might lie above the ridge, Horse ascends with dread. At the ridge's summit, Horse sees the now familiar landscape, but there is nothing but a meadow. Then, ahead, the river stretches for several yards, where he saw a line of civilians shot dead one by one, in the line, in the line facing a line of German soldiers. Horse breathes in, still grappling with the previous night's violent nightmare, still taking in the enormity of the slaughter and the young soldier's culminating act of self-destruction. He bows with the weight of it. Emotional and physical exhaustion, bending him like an old man as he places his hands on his knees for support. Horse bends the branches out of the way and emerges onto onto the meadow to inspect and make sure or make sense of what he witnessed the previous night. By horse feet, he spots a glinting piece of metal, a Nazi pin encrusted with blood. Horse tentatively reaches for it, holding it in his hands, a confirmation that he was not hallucinating. Behind horse. The shepherd whines. 39. Krista reties her boots, now crusty with crusty and worn. The soles are still intact, but she yearns to remove them and soak them in a stream, a river, or any body of water. She glances at her bottle of water, empty. She also needs a bath, having already changed into her uniform days ago when she attempted to wash with what with what little water she had left. Judging from the mud on the edges of her uniform skirt, a Nazi, excuse me, a Nazi issue khaki, now turned brown with dirt, miles of traversing the wood show on her. Specks of green slime dot her white shirt. She removed her beige tie and secured it around her head to ward off the sweat from her eyes. She surely is a mess. Not used to weeks of being unwashed, she cringes and itches with discomfort. Krista thinks about pulling off her dress, which she stuffed in the pack after changing into a cleaner clothing. Now both are filthy. Furthermore, her lips are chapped. She knows it was a matter of time before her thirst led to dehydration. Krista stands, munching hungrily on the last of her apple. 
Its juice temporarily quenches her thirst. She opens a cloth napkin. One sausage left. A rooster crows somewhere in the distance. Krista darts towards the source of the crowing. Between a, corp- between a corpse of large walnuts and maple, Krista peers. Ahead in the distance, she spots what appears to be a bunch of straws, too regular to be part of a natural landscape. Perplexed, she emerges, now walking with determination, to determine what she is seeing. She is up on a hill where trees obscure part of her view. She is looking down at bales of hay, and there are more. She parts the branches and steps out close to the crest. Rolls of hay punctuate the landscape dotted by cows busily chewing. On one side stands a sprawling stone farmhouse. Shutters open to the sun. Then two barns appear as she continues to ascend. A pasture with a field of sheep, goats, a shed facing where she is standing closest, the view obstructed now by another group of trees, the lip of the hill. It seems she was on a low ridge. A rooster emerges pecking. It must be the rooster she heard. Krista has visions of eggs, perhaps even some fruit. As if on command, a young girl whose hair and gait resemble Mila emerges from within the shed, tossing feed from a basket. Hens roam and peck. Again, as if encouraging Krista, hens cackle as more feed scatters on the dry ground. Krista, I'm sorry, hungrily, Krista eyes the hens. Then the girl looks up in Krista's direction. Blonde bangs are scaring her eyes. Mila? Eyes round with amazement. Krista almost calls out to the girl. Krista ducks, not ready to reveal herself. She wishes her mother were here to explain what she is seeing. A pang of grief intermingled with loneliness grips Krista. The girl turns and darts towards another building. Another shed, larger than the first. This one is encircled by ground cobbled with pebbles. A courtyard of sorts, with a water pump and an inviting spigot. Water drips from it, spreading and glinting on the pebbles of the morning sun. Beyond it, a thin road snakes to the woods beyond. Krista now hears a pail being moved, the bottom scraping the ground. The girl has positioned a rusty pail under the spigot, and water sloshes as the girl pumps. The girl has her back turned to her as she pumps. Fresh water, it is more than Krista can bear. Thirst and curiosity propel Krista to stand, risking, risking revealing her presence. <clears throat> she surveys the, the beam farmhouse for movement. The windows are curtained in a veil resembling lace. It spurs a memory of her mother's embroidered curtains. Her rucksack on her back, she approaches, she approaches the view now yielding all the smaller sheds and the sounds of the hens as they cackle mocking. Right beneath her, just a few yards off, she descends towards the farm. 40. Running as fast as the tall grass allows him, Horst flies. He heard an approaching truck, then men talking, laughing as if life were a picnic. He needs to put distance between himself and the passing convoy, which means getting past the river, where the bodies could still be floating. Horst keeps his eyes averted, focusing on the shepherd, which darts ahead. Horst is at a loss. In his own mind, he can't rationalize what happened last night. The soldier shooting himself just within a few feet of Horst, spewing brain matter and pieces of skull on him, his clothing, his clothing and all around him. Horst recalls vividly hearing, smelling, and seeing in detail the young soldier's anguished face and the ensuing self-inflicted violence he meted on himself and horse physique and horse psyche. It was just moments after an entire line of townspeople were shot by a squad of soldiers 
of which the young man was one. Now, in the light of day, it is as if it were just a nightmare, except for the swastika pen, pin stained with blood. How did Horace come away so clean? To add to the tragedy, he had come upon a dog, obviously a shepherd of the Reich, starving and so hungry that it ate its neglected comrades. Those remains and bones make sense to Horst. As Horst goes past the field where he saw the animal carcasses of the shepherds, he searches for evidence of the human massacre with dread. Several yards further, he finally encounters evidence, pieces of clothing near the river. As he approaches with one arm covering his nose in expectation of the sweet scent of death, he sees what may be the skeletal frames within the clothing. All in the line they are, which, which berets, okay, ah, I see, with berets and hats near, what would have been old men, scarves and lace and flowered clothing of women and children. Small, clo small clothing around small bones. Children. But the bodies have been picked clean and are bones. Finally, his arm comes down and there, as there is no scent of death. How can a gruesome scene that he witnessed last night become bones by morning? By morning. They're all bones. Impossible. Floating in the river's debris are all manner of, of possessions. Hat boxes, luggage. What was once an open parasol, beautiful in its flower pat, and its flower pattern floats by, soiled with mud. It was obvious they'd been there for at least a year, maybe two, judging from how the how the textiles are bleached of their color. As a tailor, horse knows how long it takes for fabrics to fade. Horse can't bear to look anymore. Then the instinct to survive overtakes him, and thoughts of where he will go, he will need to thoughts of where he will need to get clean and contaminated water. He glances down at the bottle in his one hand, almost empty. Then the dog. It's waiting for him. It seems, it was waiting for him, it seems, at the edge of the other side of what appears to be a stream, soaking wet. Horace pauses as the truck's engine fades in the distance, alone again with the remains of human cruelty. Stoically, Horace braves the thinnest part of the river, strewn with boulders and rocks for him to cross. One foot ahead of the other, he crosses in small steps, mining his weak ankles from spraining or worse, breaking on the molding boulders. Once in a while, he thinks he sees pieces of torn clothing and human detrius float by. Focus. Don't look. Solid ground. Then he crosses the stream. The dog waits, then wanders off as soon as horse makes it across. Wait! The shepherd pauses and turns. Horse has a new companion. 41. Into the ramshackle shed, Krista squirrels herself, looking around at her new surroundings. From her new position, Krista can hear the girl working at the pump. Krista surveys the shed. It is used for storage. All manner of farming tools hang from the sides, where the light shows through the slats and she can see the girl outside. Krista picks her way across the cluttered ground strewn with hay, soil, and tools, mindful of hitting anything that would give her away. She makes it to one of the walls clear of tools where the bale of hay sits. She decides she will hide there and perhaps spend the night until she can further observe who they are and if they are pro or anti-Reich, like her family. If they are pro-Nazi, her uniform may help, but then they'd ask why she is alone and dirty. If they are against it, then she has no choice. She has no change. Then she has to change to the dress before she is discovered. She is eager to determine where, her where food is cached 
and more importantly, who the girl is. She looks so much like Mila that Krista that Krista's heart aches. Krista hopes so. With great thirst, Krista avidly watches the pail of water. The girl's back turned to her. She is filling a wooden trough. Then the girl tugs at the heavy object at, at the heavy object now sloshing with water. Why not pull it first towards the hens before filling it? Krista puts two and two together. Now very curious about the girl, the girl is obviously challenged in some way. Her heart goes out to her, wishing she could help. And then Krista sees the girl push the trough, topping it. Precious water spills from the vessel, leaching its way between the cobblestones. She is so thirsty she can feel the water go down her throat. Then the sound of a motor from the adjacent field, a thresher. A woman calls out from the new open farmhouse door. The girl looks up. Frustrated by the motor's noise, Krista can't make out the name. The girl is obviously being summoned. The girl darts away towards the farmhouse in response. They have to be pro-Reich. How else could they be out here as if nothing is happening in the world around them? She wishes her mother were here to, were with her to explain. She always has an answer. Krista eyes the pail on the trough. She reluctantly shoulders her pack and places her basket behind the bale of hay. Determined, determinedly, she makes her way towards the shed door. She exits, making her way while darting glances at the farmhouse in the distance, a few more yards to the water spout. Outside, she leans against the shed's wall, inching her way toward the cobbled area. Hens emerge from the adjacent shed, the hen house. The hens cluck. Two hens look up and trot away. A few more steps. Suddenly, oh, slowly, she eyes the farmhouse. No one. The door remains closed. Krista appro approaches now, feeling the slippery and smooth stones beneath the threadbare soles of her boots. A foot away, she can smell the water. Krista reaches for the water handle and bears down. Water gushes down onto the stones. Krista eagerly places her lips near the spigot, drinks as she bears down on the water handle. Like a starved animal, she hears herself sucking noisily as she assuages her thirst. Nearby, her upturned, nearby the upturned trough, she glances up at the still farmhouse. She takes the bucket, fills it, and pushes the trough towards the hen house. She fills it from the bucket. Then a peck on her head. Krista turns to discover a hen inches from her head. <laughs> she returns to drink and then reaches for the bucket, refilling it to wash her arms and then her legs. Relief floods her features. The hen trots around and then disappears. The hen trots around and then disappears in the hen house. Others follow. Krista watches. She follows and enters. Eggs lie cradled in hay. Krista quickly surveys the area. She's alone and starving. She spots a rusted wire basket nearby, designed with a fleur de lis. Hens roost by a crate, plucking noisily at her intrusion. She she reaches for the basket and begins tucking and begins uh, yeah begins tucking in her eggs, oblivious to the hens clicking in anger. The shells are still soft, just hours from being laid. The hens peck at her hand, then another. Krista pulls away, then shoots the hen, then shoes the hen. <laughs> I'm sorry, it takes flight and the rest follow, showering Krista with feathers and dust motes. As the feathers settle, she sees a wooden crate, a makeshift table she can use, if she can just find a way to cook the eggs. She looks in. Voices outside, guys, not ghosts. There, amidst the feathers and chicken droppings, lies a blue handkerchief with an embroidery of a pink pony. Krista grabs the handkerchief and, in her exuberance, suddenly sits. 
The scent of her mother's perfume lingers on it. She inhales it as a flood of memory, signaling a longing for reunion that assails her internal vision of her mother's kitchen. She looks around, now alive, joyous, and hopeful. Her mother or someone from her family was here, or is here. In the distance, a door creaks open. 42. Exhausted, hurting cold and hungry, Horse finally surrenders to his body and sits on a boulder. Come. The shepherd pauses and turns back, stopping and sitting behind ho- beside Horse. Tail wagging, the dog eagerly watches Horse dig into his bag. The wedge of cheese, now just a few bites left, is all he has besides a few sausages. The dog looks away and sniffs, his nose pointing downhill. In the growing twilight, Horse stands and spots the dog approaching, a small stream. This looks clear, unlike the one he previously crossed hours ago. Horse approaches seeing rocks and pebbles at the bottom of the clear water. Hungrily, he dips the water bottle, filling it. Then, schools of small fish evade his hand. More fish pass. Sardines. Horse sinks as his stomach yields the hunger. The dog approaches, a branch in his mouth. Horse pauses, and taken aback by the intelligence of his companion, he takes it, parting the dog, patting the dog on the head. He pulls out a small knife and starts to whittle the branch, making a spear. In the distance, the shrill sound of a whistling train disrupts horse concentration. Beyond the impending darkness, within the trees, he spots what appears to be a train trestle several miles off. He decides he'll explore the possibility of riding the train south. Quickly, horse stands and is determined to have a meal for both of them. He spears at the stream, at the stream water, spewing as he aims and hits one of the fish, and another. Hours pass. The darkness deepens as it descends from twilight to night. Horse walks away from the stream, tossing the homemade spear in disgust to the ground in frustration. He grabs his water jug and returns to the water's edge, leans over, refilling it. He's all sweaty now. He looks up at the fading light, and the train trestle is no longer visible. In resignation, he sips his water, then pours it over his head. He returns to where he left his bag, and munches the last of his sausages as he sits. The dog looks on, cocking her head. Eat. Horse tosses a piece of sausage to the dog. Horse wearily stands, unfolds his jacket, spreading it on the ground under a huge tree, just a few yards from the stream. The dog approaches, circles, and finally lies near him, next to him. Horse shuts his eyes. Silence. Darkness. Then movement. Eyes open. Horse vision gains focus. He sees the trees above him. Eerily, the forest is dead silent. No crickets, cicadas, frogs, nor sounds common to the night. He wonders what awakened him, as he is so exhausted. The dog? Slowly he turns his head towards the stream on his right, just a few yards down slope, then left, at the embers of a fire. A fire? He doesn't recall making a fire. Horse goes... Through in his mind the last few hours he was attempting to fish with a spear to no avail. He doesn't recall making a fire, but there it is, a few hours, a few hours it seems, warming him in the dead of night. He didn't make one, as he doesn't want to be seen. He sits up, realizing this, and looks at the sleeping form of the shepherd. Then he finally hears a sound. It is the sound of water, a movement making, a movement making small splashes in the stream. He wonders who has been there as he slept. As he crawls towards the source of the noise of the darkness, small pools of water make circles in the stream, disrupting its flow as it passes, like pebbles being dropped, but it's coming from beneath the water. 
In the light of stars, Horse searches the ground for his self-made spear. He grabs it, standing now, hovering near, hovering near the waterline. Fish. Small slivers of fish. Okay, yeah, small slivers of fish pass right under the transparent surface of the fresh water. Some larger than others are touching the surface, feeding, it seems. Some are leaping over the surface. With avid hunger, horse plummets the spear at a fish. It skillfully evades him. Visions of the earlier adventure, which ended in frustration, flow through his mind. But this, but they weren't this close. This close. Hell-bent on eating, horse repeatedly jabs at the fish as their, as, as their silvery bodies evade him. Again, again, again. Sweat pours from his brow. He wipes it from his eyes. The shepherd is awake now, watching, yelping, and encouraging him. Again. Again. Water splashes. The fish scatter. Horse sits. Exasperation fills his features. He looks back at the embers. He takes a few breaths. Horse mutters a prayer in German. He shuts his eyes as if to meditate. He opens his eyes and hears more splashes. He goes deeper into the center of the stream where the splashes are more evident. Fish jump. What are they? Horse aims and jabs at the water. A fish is stunned. A fin caught. It struggles as horse follows it, jabbing, jabbing, and jabbing, right through the eye. Horse grabs the slippery fish with both hands, lest it slip. Triumphantly, he holds the fish. The shepherd looks on from the shoreline, head cocked to one side. We got one. Horse returns to the shore, joyful in the simplicity of his triumph. He tosses the fish onto the embers. Whomever made the fire made it right on time. Morning. The remains of the fish, charred eyes and heads staring back, smoke in the gaining light of dawn. Horses retying his dirty boots now caked in dirt. He looks up at the dog. The shepherd dog walks briskly through the forest, following the stream. Horse attempts to follow despite the understory, which is constantly trapping his legs. Finally, the dog pauses, sniffing, head down. Horse opens a small steel compass. He sees the dog has been leading himself via the stream. Via the stream smart dog. The dog looks up as if attempting to communicate. Suddenly it takes off. Horse follows, now intent on not losing the shepherd. Reaching a clearing, Horse spots the dog lapping in the stream. Horse descends, rolls up his pants, and stoops down to drink the coolness. He looks up to locate the train trestle he saw the day before. They're headed in the right direction. He fills the water canteen once again, then washes his face. Mud clings to his boots, now worn with worn from his struggle to walk the endless miles of the forest. He sniffs, his shirt kicked with dirt, leaves and detrius. He must be quite a sight. From far off, horse can now hear the distinct sound of a train passing on the trestle. The chug-chug of the engine fills him with ambivalence. Both hope and fear of detection mingle together. He observes the shepherd sitting, then rolling now on the quiet grass. He relaxes, taking the animal's cue. The dog keeps rolling, licking to clean her paws as she lies on her back, feeling safe with Horst. Horst, re Horst relaxes even farther and proceeds to undress. He reciprocates the sense of safety. With a meal in both their bellies, he decides it's time to wash, like every animal does afterwards. The water is, uh, is a warmth he didn't expect, flowing sedately across his tired skin and lulling him further. Naked into the stream, he descends, washing off the dirt, <clears throat> and with it, his history. It's going, to, 
I'm going to call you, Mana. The dog pauses, observing Horst, and in his own interpretation, she seems to smile. Horst dips his head, opening his eyes to the underwater world of weeds, evading fish, and pebbly bottom. Slowly, in gen gentle stride, he allows himself the luxury of the moment, making the, mo making the moment last as if it were forever. He surfaces and glances at Mana, who is now standing at attention, hairs on her back, appearing to stand, and makes the shepherd even larger than she is. Horst observes the ribs showing on Mana and makes a mental note to hunt game, to hunt game this time and forage, to share his meal every time with his new companion, who is, who is now his navigator. Not knowledgeable about plants, Horst realizes he needs to confine his diet to fish and small game, just in case he encounters a toxic plant. He wishes for Krista, knowledgeable with mushroom and, and wild edible plants. The dog darts a glance at Horst, darts a glance away in the direction where the passing sound of the train originated. Quickly, Horst senses an urgency and dresses, tugging at his worn boots and shouldering his messenger bag. Mana leads him into the woods, away from the stream. Someone, someone Horst has yet to be seen is coming. Horst enters a profusion of trees where the dog pauses, watching, pointing like a hunting dog. He takes the dog's cue and watches from his hidden position between the branches. The sound of trucks, motors gaining, a convoy of trucks in a tank. Men with hats in green and brown, horse squints. They're barely yards, even a few feet from horse. A red four-pointed star on a man's square hat. A woman sits perched on a truck, looking on with a few men. A lapel in green with two red stripes. The Red Army. Russians? The convoy appears to be headed whence he came from upstream according to his map as he opens it to determine her, their origin is the south already occupied horse digs into his bag revealing his identity papers as a german citizen his picture showing a younger wholesome man with trim mustache as well as a tailored shirt his working papers are in another sleeve showing him as a tailor for the nazis it does not bode well for him if he were caught then he thinks of agatha in the happier times her garden their rented house the village then he thinks of Krista, his only child. He pulls the plastic the working, paper, the working papers are in and toys with the idea of hiding it. Emerging from the trees, he gestures to the shepherd and walks towards the road. He looks up and down, watching for movement. Songbirds flutter, getting flight. With thoughts of Krista on his mind, he quickly gains in step and heads down the road. Mana as his watchman. 43. Krista watches the farmhouse door open. Then the shed to her right. She has to lean down low behind the water pump, which gives little cover, if any. A young boy, about twelve, emerges from the shed. The hands cluck. He looks up, almost making eye contact. Krista quickly moves around the pump, attempting to hide. The boy, dusty from gathering hay, is carrying a bale and loading a horse cart. Busily, he clambers onto the back, rearranging. Then steps off, re-entering the shed. Again, he emerges, filling the cart and crates in produce. Krista watches curiously, wondering whether it is market day. If he is going north with whoever is with him, she needs to get on that cart, giving her a much-needed rest, and perhaps new clothing that would allow her to toss her Nazi uniform. A man, stocky, blonde, bearded, emerges from a corner of the shed, pulling a horse with him. He connects the horse to the cart. Good. That's my ride, Kristen uses. She ponders on how she won't be seen, unless they are willing to help. 
Krista has to be prepared for the questions. What are you doing here? Where did you come from? Are you running away from someone? Her legs are growing tired from the hunching in the same position. Soon, she knows, the cramp will overcome her, and she has to stand. A finger pokes at, pokes her back. Krista, Krista leaps. A familiar face. The girl is joyous. Mila? The girl puts her fingers across her lips, signaling silence. Then she embraces Krista. A sense of belonging of coming home seizes Krista in a in, in, in most joy. Mila inundates both cheeks with her kiss, with kisses, looks into her eyes as Krista's gales of laughter rouse the hens nearby. Mila's inflection, infectious laughter in response rouses the boy from the shed. He comes running in his dusty clothes, hay still clinging. His smile wide and hair full of life, all arms, legs, and knees too long for him. He is about Krista's age. The two girls leap up and down, arms linked, and the boy, without awaiting an explanation, joins in. Hens fly, cluck, and sheep join in the medley of unbridled laughter. From the farmhouse in the distance, a door swings open and a stocky man emerges. He darts towards the group with a limp. Mila waves at the stocky man, broad-shouldered and handsome in his early forties, as his features become more distinct with his approach. Edgar, this is my sister Krista. Edgar studies Krista in her filthy Nazi youth uniform. His smile fades. The boy looks from a f- the boy looks from father to Krista and back, searching for an explanation in the heavy pause. I'm, I'm I was a Nazi youth teacher. I, Mila interrupts her slur as a disabled child giving away her anxiety. She had to do it to survive. Krista nods. Krista nods in agreement. The boy smiles and raises his hand in greeting. I'm Holzer. Hello, Holzer. I defected. Ran away to find my father, who's been taken. Edgar places his hand on Krista's shoulder. Come, breakfast is waiting. 44. What Krista understands as the story unfolds about Mila's escape is a man awakened Mila from the edge of of a river. Mila, in in her halting way, still exuberant from the reunion, tells Krista over a large breakfast of her narrow and fearful escape with the aid of Edgar and his son Holzer. As Hannah, a Jewish woman in her fifties, makes a hearty breakfast of fresh eggs from the hen house and and a ham still hanging from the rafters, Mila's account takes over the atmosphere of the of the large stone kitchen. Edgar and Holzer add to the story, helping Mila with her memory. Mila, having fainted, was shaken awake from the arbiter around around her by by a wounded man, Edgar. Mila's confusion added to her turmoil as she sat riveted to the sounds of the dying and the detritus of the dead strewn all around in the aftermath of a massacre. Edgar, a prisoner of war, had managed to escape from a concentration camp and came upon the river to drink, only to witness the firing squad that annihilated an entire population of civilians with some form of disability. Holzer is a German boy, disabled, with some form of genetic, genetic disorder that makes his arms and legs too large for him. He was among the lineup with Krista, as he did not fit with the perfection the Nazis expected. Among them, but managing to hide before the lineup was made, was, Han- was Hannah, the Jewish woman who was now making breakfast. There we go. For her makeshift family. Her own family is among the dead. Whereas the exuberance of the, ex- yeah, the exuberance of reunion lifts them to a sense of buoyancy. The account makes the mood heavier in the room. Edgar explains that after 
walking for miles away from the death scene by night, they finally came to a deserted farm where animals, to their joy, were still alive. Edgar had been a farmer in England and knew how to sustain a farm with the help of his new son, Holzer. When they saw their fortune, they dared not question the fate of the former owners and thank the divine grace of God for their luck. Krista feels she completes this new family, their graciousness and warmth making her feel welcome and touched. She feels herself relaxing after endless weeks of trudging in fear and hunger through the forest. She tells them of her encounters with the girl she believes is the ghost of the former tenant's daughter. In the splendid mansion that was given to them when her father was appointed tailor of the regime, her parents had come to sense that the Nazis had been murdering and plundering the previous families to give them to give away the houses and their contents to the cronies. No one comments as hush falls as a hush falls on the room. They eat in companionable silence for the rest of the meal. Forty-five. Horse follows the road strewn with straws and pockmarked in hev- by heavy military artillery. A sense of dread lingers in the air. The shepherd leads the way a few yards ahead. He glances at his compass, still heading south. Ahead, the road wends its way into the forest, quiet, grim, foreboding. Night is descending again as Horse notes the time on his waterflogged watch. He pauses to wind it, but it is obviously broken with the water from the streams and the river he was drenched in. He notes the upscale driven insignia on the brown, a Nazi eagle embossed under the thick wash face. Despite the make, water still breached the watch. Thoughts of better times with parties at the shop where the German military officers were invited to see fashionable clothing for men and women flows through his mind. He thinks about the time he received the watch as a gift from, from Commandant Baer. What they were dining on, the opulent dining rooms he ended up frequenting, and the celebrations with Agatha on their anniversary and birthdays. Agatha. Grief assails him like a sharp bullet, tearing through his now thin frame, causing him to stumble. His eyes begin to brim with tears, and in in a split-second decision, he turns towards the forest, sensing a desire to hide, perhaps to roll into a ball and sleep away the despair that is overtaking him. Mana senses the change in his pace, turns and follows Horse into the woods. The dog whines about her disagreement, and Horse pauses, leaning down to pet the dog as she approaches. The chug-chug of an approaching train in the distance once again signals how much progress Horse has made. They are close to the tracks now. He considers the plan for getting a ride, but looks down at the shepherd he can't leave behind. He follows Mana, who leads again deeper into the wood, but still going south. At all costs, he decides he will take her with him. Perhaps he will find a train with an empty animal stall, which would be safer, just to help him ease his blistered feet. Horse looks up at the approaching twilight, opens his bag, and decides to make camp. As he assembles wood and kindling for the fire, the shepherd watches. He sits nurturing the embers and thinks idly of who made a fire for him not too long ago. The fish is long gone, so Horse stands to assess where where, where he can find food. As Horse pulls his flask from his bag, he sips it sparingly and offers some to Mana. The dog turns her head as if to refuse, then stands and darts away. Horse quickly follows, wondering. As Horse follows, he smells rain, and upon inspection, Horse comes upon a pond. He washes his face, noting the algae. Can't drink this one, Mana. 
The dog cocks her head to the side and assists as if to ponder. Then, movement. Horace instinctively pulls out his homemade spear and ducks, and ducks as he turns. A rabbit, its nose moving, sensing danger. Mona gives chase, and as she does, a piece of silver, round like a coin, pings from her collar. Horse walks over and picks it up, noting it is a dog tag. Phoebe. He looks up quickly, following the shepherd. Phoebe, your name is Phoebe. The shepherd sharply turns at the sound of her name, then resumes running as horse gives chase. Phoebe is gaining on the rabbit. Then it plummets into a hole. Phoebe pauses over the hole, barking, whining, tail wagging. Horse walks over, pocketing the tag, consoling the dog. It's okay, Phoebe. We'll find another. But Phoebe again snaps to attention as if looking in the distance, almost pointing. Horse follows the dog's eyes and looks. Another stream flows near the bottom of a cliff. Horse surveys the area where the stiff wind blows, heralding rain as clouds gather in the dark brew. Quickly, he follows the dog to the clearing, his spear drawn and ready to fish again. And we're going to stop there, 40, chapter 46. Let me uh, click this down here so I can talk to you guys. There we go. Boom. Okay, so we're going to stop at chapter 46 tonight. And uh, next week we'll be back starting at chapter at, at chapter 46 to read. Uh, tomorrow is going to be a really good show. We'll be on at 6.30 p.m. Pacific like we always are. And Ron Felber, author Ron Felber is going to be with us. And he's going to be talking about the Mojave Incident. And the Mojave Incident is probably one of the scariest UFO encounters I have ever, or UAP encounters, whatever you guys want to call them. Uh, one of the scariest ones I have ever read, and I have read a lot of them. This one gave me nightmares for days. So I'm eager to talk with him. The people that he writes about don't really do a lot of interviews. So that's why it's pretty much, you know, talking in one of these deals where you talk with, directly with the author. But I think you're going to, you're, I'm not going to say you're going to enjoy this story, but the story will, will draw you in. You know, this couple goes camping in the Mojave in their pickup truck and they, and they get it and they're able to observe these, these, these uh, spacecraft like they're mining or looking for, looking for ore or whatever they're doing. And then, and then the, um, and then the aliens show up and then it, then it takes off from there. So it's a very interesting book and a very interesting story. Okay, so I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. But I mean, yeah, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I'm just trying to remember. Been a long night. Anyway, if you want to visit the radio, uh, the, the radio uh, webpage, it's at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And uh, you can see all our videos there. If you uh, want to visit our YouTube page, you can do it from there as well. Just click on the videos that are on there. I'm going to try and get everything updated the next couple of days. So it's all up to date. And just click there, it'll take you to the YouTube page. If not, Google California Haunts on YouTube, and it should come up. And uh, also, uh, you see that uh, little taggy thing running beneath? That's because California Haunts is a nonprofit organization. And uh, we don't make any money to do this. We don't make any money on our ghost hunts. The only kind of money we make is uh, donations. And if you can find it in your heart to do that, that would be great, because there's expenses related uh, and involved with this, like, headphones, computers, mics, you know, all that stuff, the internet service, yada, 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 yada. And we're just trying to keep this going because we enjoy bringing it to you, my producers and I. And I'm a journalist by trade, so this is what I do, and I love doing it. So if you could help by donating, you know, a little bit, that would be great. And you can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can do that at Venmo, and then just type in California Haunts. But I want to thank you guys for coming today. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. See ya.